Welcome to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast, where guests share learning from life experiences to help others on the same path. Welcome back to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast. It's Sophia Giblin here, your podcast host. And this week I've been speaking to Professor Adam Ockelford. Adam is the director of the Applied Music Research Centre at the University of Roehampton and a professor of music. And we're talking all things music and learning disabilities this week. So Adam invited me along for a slightly different session. We talk about how music helps people to communicate Uh, especially if they're non-verbal or are suffering with challenges like dementia or autism. And then I was also given the pleasure of sitting in on a session with an 18-year-old girl called Romy who came to see Adam for a music session. Now, I was allowed to sit in and watch and observe and listen to the music that they made together. Romy is non-verbal, so she plays the piano with Adam and they have conversations using the music. It was really fascinating to watch and you can see the intricacy of the relationship and the conversation through the music. So you will actually hear some of Romy and Adam playing together in this uh, podcast episode too. So I hope you enjoy that. So I'm really pleased to be here today with Professor Adam Ockelford from the University of Roehampton. So you're the director of the Applied Music Research Centre here and also the author of over 20 books, I've just found out. Yeah, well, thanks very much for coming, Sophia. Um, yeah, so my research interest really is in how music, the positive impact that music can have on a whole range of people, people with autism, for example, um, visually impaired children, and most recently people with dementia. Okay, oh, brilliant. So it's not not just children, so it's all the way up the other end. Yes, the full, I suppose as I get older, I get more interested in the <laughs> diseases of ageing, you know, because it seems more relevant. Mm. Um, but actually, I mean, seriously, there are, I do work with children with dementia as well. Really? Um, there, are, there are childhood dementias. Oh. And for them, uh, music can be really important. It can be the one route in when everything else is failing. And really important for families as well, because it means when the children can no longer talk, for example, for several years after that, they can still perhaps engage with other people through music right wow so well today we're going to be talking all things music and all things relationships and how music can be used as a vehicle to help make change so we'd just be really interested I suppose in some of your insights uh, into the work for doing this so how many years have you been doing this Mm. well I started as a volunteer at a school for the blind um, about 40 years ago and I'm still volunteering at the same school so and I knew at the time it was a bad idea, you know, that I could be stuck there for life. Um, but no, it's been um, a fantastic journey of exploration. And I think the the lovely thing is that every day um, I sort of get up and, and you never quite know with working with children and families what's going to happen. Even children you know very well, been working with for 10 or 20 years. Um, and so it's, it's really um, a fascinating, I think of it as a journey that you go on with with people mm. particularly for example some of the children don't don't speak that I work with and um, it's almost like you gradually get to know what they're thinking through the way that they use music in, in improvising for example um, I think later on we're going to hear Romy play the piano uh, so Romy is non-verbal she's 18 and and autistic but for her music is like this proxy language so she actually uses music literally as words which she can't say um, but words to communicate so she'll say hello in music she'll say goodbye in music 
she'll tease me so she'll say music has finished she'll do that that little piece that I've written for her uh, in the middle of a lesson um, <laughs> to sort of uh, yeah if you'd said to me when I started out could B flat be ironic I'd say no but Romy <laughs> non-verbal as she is proves it that you can because she plays B flat which is the beginning of the music has finished song uh, when she doesn't actually mean it so there you are B flat can be ironic <laughs> amazing mm. so how do you get to the point where you are able to converse in that way through music yeah I think I always think um, working with children with perhaps a, quite an extreme end of the neurodiversity spectrum um, you've just got to take time and you've got to really um sort of get permission from the child almost to enter their world because a lot of the children um, are quite resistant to people sort of telling them what to do or, or sort of insisting they comply with with certain things that teachers might think are important whereas a lot of autistic children already have their lives worked out they, they know what they like they know what they want to do they know how they want to relate to people and it's really a question of starting where they're at and then sort of tempting them out a bit by actually showing them that if you engage, for example, in, in music with someone, it can be great fun. It's not threatening. Music doesn't tell you what to do. It doesn't tell you you're wrong or naughty. It just is. It's been called the language of eternal play. And I think that's a really good metaphor because music, it just is. Mm. It, it's not, not judgmental. It's fun and it's a safe way to relate to someone else. Mm. I'm just thinking as you're speaking actually about how we use music from so early on. Yeah. Lullabies and singing, even singing to the bump in utero. And uh, so would you say is, is music the first language, do you think? Yeah, I think there's quite good evidence now that both phylogenetically, so in other words, in terms of our development as a species, and also ontogenetically, so in terms of our development as individuals, that music precedes language, or at least a form of proto-music. So we communicate with babies through what you might call non-verbal vocalisations that have an emotional content. So you might go, boop, you know, or a baby might. Mm -hmm. And of course we're, we're hardwired to respond to babies' talk. So you've got motherese, as it's sometimes called when mum, particularly because her voice is in the same register as a baby, can copy the babbling sounds that babies make. And babies very early on um, learn to copy back as well. And so psychologists have shown how these little babbling sounds are actually like proto-melodies that have a certain emotional import that we that gradually, as we develop, turn into, into more formal music. But again, the evidence now is that as a homo sapiens developed, probably developed early music sort of rhythms and vocalizing probably 500,000 years ago whereas I think language they think now may have evolved about 300,000 years ago so music quite literally predates language wow so for 200,000 years yes we were stomping around making <laughs> emo emotive vocalizations but well you can imagine of course when you when you listen to our nearest um, relatives you know sort of um, howler monkeys and baboons they have very expressive vocalizations and you can imagine how those turned into kind of sort of um, more sophisticated emotional communication and gradually acquired a symbolic meaning I think the magic of someone like Romy is that you can actually 
she almost occupies that place between music as an emotive medium whereby notes have an emotional appeal but also using discrete melodies as symbols as well so for her um like do 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 is goodbye so when she plays or hums it that has a symbolic that has a literal semantic symbolic meaning for her so music can actually occupy the place of words as well mm. so she's taken that the tone of the word and is able to express it on the piano absolutely yeah. so what's her level of understanding when somebody is speaking in language to her mm. um like lots of well like all of us actually her receptive language is better than her um, expressive language her spoken language um and because of the damage to her brain, the way it works, she can't physically produce words. Okay. Uh, we don't think. She sometimes has a, a try, but um, it's obviously difficult for her. Um, but she can certainly understand key um, day-to-day expressions. So I think her father, for example, told her last night she was coming to music today and she hasn't been for a while. And she definitely understood and was quite pleased, which is nice, nice mm. to say, nice to see. And... Um, she certainly understands key words. Um, it's a bit like, I imagine it's a bit like us listening to a foreign language where you know certain words. So you'll get the gist of something, probably. Sometimes you'll make mistakes because you didn't quite understand the tense, for example. Um, so you might say swimming, and you think, well, are we about to go swimming? Or are you saying we've just been swimming? Or are we swimming next week? You know, understanding key words is a start. But you can see why as well it might lead to confusion sometimes because the key sort of um, uh, words that, that contextualise that might be missed. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So tell us a little bit more about your work here. Yeah, so my, my main job here at Roehampton is research. Research. Um, and that's very pleasantly involves working with people a lot, which is great. So I work with um, autistic children um, right across the spectrum actually from non-verbal to very able young young people um using music in all sorts of different ways so for some it's literally a proxy language it substitutes for speech for others it might help them with emotional regulation for example and for others it it's a great medium of socialization it may be the one way they can reach out into the world of other people and feel um, almost empathy really um, for others, it's a hobby. It's a pastime. Um, they might be really good at lots of things. And music's one element of that. So that's one area of work. Another area of work is with um, people with dementia, both children and adults. So children too get dementia, sort of neurodegeneration. And it's been shown quite persuasively now that um, as the brain deteriorates through things like Alzheimer's, uh, music seems to survive longer than many other things. Mm. So, for example, it survives longer than speech alone, which means that people with dementia um, can sing when they can no longer speak. And that functionally can be quite useful. So we've been trialling these things called microsongs, which have everyday functional language associated with short melodies. Um, so things like, yes, please, and no, thank you. Yes, please. So it could be that the person can no longer say no thank you or yes please. But if they think music, they might be able to go no thank you. They, they might be able to sing. And actually they, 
the initial results are very promising. We've been working for two years with a group of, of people who are losing the capacity to speak, but they can all sing and they can all learn new songs as well. And the next phase now is to try and embed those into everyday life with carers. So we're working on that at the moment. Wow. So the music almost becomes like a scaffold for the... Yeah, it seems that in the brain, music and language share certain resources. And it seems in ch children with certain sorts of brain damage or people with dementia, the, the direct route into words is damaged and inaccessible. But the route to music isn't. And because music and language can be stored together in the brain, it means that think music and you can access the words. You can draw them out through the music, mm. music pathway. I always find it quite fascinating how I, I couldn't remember like my childhood home address, but I could remember a song from mm -hmm. when I was five years old and all the words. Sure. Yep. So there, as you know, there are different sorts of memory. There's sort of episodic memory for things that happened. There's um, a kind of memory of, say, riding a bike. There's that kind of functional memory. Um, and there's what you might call schematic memory. So things like um, grammars. And we know how to construct a sentence even though we've never said it before or heard it before, because we've had this implicit learning. And music is a mixture of different forms of memory. So the implicit memory we all build up of music enables us to hum a tune. If I said, just make up a tune, da -da 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 -da. you can do it because you understand, all of us understand how music works as a grammar. You can also, if I say, sing happy birthday, you've got a distinct memory for that. And you may well have memories of music associated with particularly strong emotional occasions. So, um, for example, um, music at a wedding or a funeral might be particularly strongly emotionally tagged. So music, like every other memory, has different faculties. And um, for children with disabilities, it's the same. So for them, certain music might be particularly important. Things like a goodbye song. I've worked with children and it makes them cry because they... Sometimes for children with autism, for example, emotions are nearer the surface, actually, and so they can be emotionally quite up and down and react more strongly to music rather than less, which is interesting. Mm. Yeah, so that link with emotion is, is a really interesting one. Um, I, I remember hearing something about the, the, the sense of smell that kind of bypasses lots of the mm. different parts of the brain and goes straight to... Is that the same with music? It can be, yeah. Music... Yeah. Um, in its earliest form, I mean, it, it developed from obviously other wider auditory perception in animals. So if an animal hears um, a loud, big sound, it runs or it freezes or whatever. You know, there's a, and it's an instinctive response. So it's not a consciously mediated response. You just, you just run if you're scared. And so some of that still exists in music. So we have very strong, very quick, non-conscious responses to all sounds um, so it may not be hopefully frightening but nonetheless every sound you hear produces this non-conscious emotional response and what music does it ties all those responses together into an emotional narrative so a composer takes those basic emotions that sound produces and, and can take on a journey you know you can feel a climax of music you might feel sad or happy and then you might relax towards the end and children intuitively respond in the same way you don't need music theory to respond in that way you don't need language to respond in that way it's part of our design as human beings so children with even quite severe or profound disabilities can uh, enjoy music and appreciate music 
just as much as a neurotypical person. Mm. Yeah, it really strikes me when you talk about the relationship, let's say with Romy, for example, how tuned in as an adult you have to be to to her to her needs is that is that right is that what you'd say yeah i think with a lot of children with quite severe disabilities who are non-verbal um people working with them and their friends and family need to be very tuned in to not only to the um the music they might make but to what to the body language as well to gesture to facial expression and sometimes a tiny facial expression can mean a lot more than it perhaps does and normally because we might use a word saying please don't do that please stop playing that piece if you can't use those words then you have to find some other way of communicating that might be a physical movement it might be a vocalization it might just be a stare um, please stop or it might be yes i quite like that could you do it again please and i think part of working with any child with severe disability is this attunement it's called so we um by spending time with someone by observing them and by sort of having a hunch as to whether they want something or not you gradually build up this relationship and they come to feel relaxed that you understand what they want and that you won't do things they they don't like so so much anyway and that you'll provide the things that they they do want and that takes time and it can take years to come alongside someone with severe or profound autism and you just have to take the long view you can't you're not going to do something in an hour it might take five years and then you've um, you know you <laughs> gradually um, move forward together mm, absolutely and I think that sort of links back to what you were saying about providing a safe space for the relationship to to take place really and also allowing them to do what it is that they want to do and not forcing them to comply which actually is very often the experience I guess outside of this room or yeah I think it's not saying um it's about being child-centered and Mm. I mean obviously we're all guided by the best best interests of the child so sometimes the best interests of the child might be saying yes I will I understand that you want me to play the same piece a hundred times that's fine I'll do that sometimes it might be to say actually I don't think it's in your best interest that we only play three notes for three hours. It's not in my best interest <laughs> anyway. So it doesn't mean doing whatever the child wants whenever they want to. It, it means respecting their voice, however they express their voice. And it means, as an adult, taking a broader view of, of, of what seems to be best for them. And even a severely autistic person, um, it's not that they don't want boundaries. They do want boundaries, but they want you to know... There's a difference between doing something a child doesn't want because you don't understand and doing something a child doesn't want because you respect their views but you've you've decided as an adult not to do it. And I think you can see with Romy that she knows I know what she wants. That doesn't mean I'm always going to do it. And that's an important step. That takes a long time to to do. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's almost like giving control to the child within a safe environment. Yeah, absolutely. And also things like, you'll see with Romy, um, she's quite funny and she teases me and I can tease her. And I think that that humour that we naturally have with one another, it's sort of teasing and not joshing, but you know what I mean, the kind of uh, the funniness that, that, that little children have um, when they start to understand what you're thinking and you deliberately counter that or they deliberately do something else to tease. 
I think that humour is terribly important in relationships with with people with disabilities because it can life can be pretty grim and dull and boring because it's all rather cognitive you know people just think well you've got abilities and can do this and do that but actually that's not how we relate to people we relate to people on an emotional level and I think it's really important to have a, a humorous relationship as well that, that involves yeah a bit of teasing a bit of um, pretending you know, mm-hmm. I don't, what is that you want mm-hmm. um, and that's priceless really because humor like that shows that you really understand someone so if Ramey teases me um, in terms of theory of mind which is putting yourself in someone else's shoes it shows that she knows what I'm thinking and she knows what impact her actions will have on me and she knows that I know she's only teasing and it's a really sophisticated thing that people when they start to think about it they think actually that's a really sophisticated human relationship to tease someone in a nice way Mm-hmm. Um, because it involves not only knowing what you think but it also involves knowing that you know that I don't really mean it and that's a complicated concept yeah I suppose we actually we see that in in all children don't we from probably quite early on yeah you see the little toddler dropping something on the floor and the parents yeah. face going mm, don't even try and they do yeah. it and then there's yeah, a laugh yeah. but then there's a Oh, now you're doing it again. Okay, no, now it's not funny anymore. You know that. Yeah, yes. The testing of the boundary. Absolutely. Here's Romy. Hello, Rome. She's going to push past you. Okay, sure. So at this point in the recording, Romy comes into the room for her music session. And so we get to hear now a bit of her and Adam playing together. And listen out for the types of conversation that they're having over the music. And you can hear when Romy's taking charge and when she's asking for the music to change. Um, And Adam said he keeps going as long as she's happy you know he'll keep playing but if she starts playing something else then he follows her lead because it's very child-led and they make beautiful and amazing music together so I hope you enjoy this next bit and then um, I I speak to Adam again afterwards and he explains a little bit more about how the conversation works so there's probably about five minutes of music now and then a a little more from Adam and then we hear Romy and Adam playing out till the end so hope you enjoy this next bit too.
Yeah, so some of the songs Romy was using on this book. Okay. So she was wheeling through um, the feeling songs, which are. So the song goes, How Are You Feeling? Mm-hmm. And Raven was playing all the, all the emotions. So she's playing happy, tired, one that Tim made up called Exasperated, and another one, Angry. Yes. So, <laughs> and then lots of the other songs were. I don't, I don't know them, all of them actually, because Romy hears lots of things. So some of them I just sort of copy and we enjoyed improvising on. Quite a lot of them, sometimes like she played, We Are Sailing, I haven't played that one for five years or something. Oh wow. So, um, and basically if Romy doesn't stop me playing, then she's okay with it. Uh-huh. I think even when, like now, when Romy doesn't seem to be listening, actually from listening to every word, aren't you? And you're quite good at um, listening to lots of things at once. Mm-hmm. So um, if I say Romy's great, all that stuff, that's right. <laughs> but there are certain trigger words I won't say because otherwise I should get in trouble. Mm-hmm. But you can see how... I mean, it's a very sophisticated conversation in sound, isn't it? Yeah. Romy's such a wonderful musician. I say quick. I think this is speed of thought. So she'll connect a melody because it's got the same note because it was learned on the same day, because it's in the same key, because it's sometimes got the same words, actually. She knows the words of the song, so she'll link like that. Sometimes just for fun. Sometimes she'll start one song and then knowing that actually it's the same beginning as a different song, so it's like teasing, isn't it? So she'll... Whatever I do, it's wrong. But I think the thing is the... The emotional engagement Romy has with music is very, very mm. powerful, isn't it? It's like, it's like being um, for a musician. It's like being sandblasted because professional musicians get quite grey and bored with doing the same things. And Romy's like a breath of fresh air because every note counts. Every note for her is very powerful. She used to cry, didn't she? Sometimes at certain notes. Oh, right. And things like that, belt sander, whatever it was, was going on would have caused ructions when she was a little girl. She used to play the aeroplanes coming down to land. Yeah. That's why I closed the windows, actually. Yeah. yeah. So for her, I think the whole world is just like a big orchestra. Uh-huh. And she can capture it and control it, and then she can share it, which is great. So she can just hear something and play it? Yeah, so That's she's got amazing. perfect pitch. Wow. So it means that every note in the world for her is quite distinct. Okay. I think she's got a very powerful memory of them as well. So for most of us, when we remember anything, it's, we just remember it in quite an abstract way. I think for Romy, it's quite a, a visceral memory. It's very real. Mm. And sometimes you, when I was playing something, she was clearly got something else in her mind because she was playing bits of it. So what's in her mind, is, I think it's more vivid than it is for our memories. Mm. And she can hold that memory more strongly. So... If, you took an average human being and I said think of a piece of music think of happy birthday and I started playing something else loud you you wouldn't be able to keep thinking of it yeah because it would interfere I think Romy that's not the case she can keep thinking what she wants to think 
maybe even several things at once. I don't know. She has several iPads on sometimes, doesn't she? And, and plays the piano at the same time. Gosh. And so, the radio. And the radio, yeah. And the TV. <laughs> wow. All at the same time. Yeah. She's got this like multi-track facility that mm. most people don't have. So at this point, Romy was really keen to carry on with her music session. As you can hear, she's really enjoying herself. So I decided to leave Adam and Romy to it. And I'm going to leave them to play you out on this episode for the next few minutes because the music that they made together was truly remarkable. Um, I think it's incredible that although Romy is nonverbal, you can hear her communicating through the music. And I think the, the biggest takeaway for me is that music is the primary language. It's our first language. It connects us all. And even with... Um, challenges and difficulties music is something that can contain us all and help us feel and help us to access our emotions and to express ourselves so we must remember the awesome power of music and I really hope you've enjoyed this episode something slightly different and I look very much forward to seeing you on the next episode of things I wish I'd known (laughs) 